0: Our text tonight is found in that Old Testament passage that we read together and in verse 18 where it says, the city shall be built upon its own mount. A few weeks ago I mentioned that there is a, a great difficulty really in the current age that we live in where there are many who think that there can be conversion without transformation of life, that there can be a following of Jesus without a changed life. And really that isn't consistent with what the scriptures say. When somebody comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ for themselves, it is a deep work of God that changes and transforms. It is a a new birth. It is a recreation. And in thinking really of how to illustrate this a little further, I was struck by this lovely text here in Jeremiah 30. And the Word of God is such a stunning book. It's a divine book, as we know. And it is full of Jesus Christ from beginning to end. And throughout the scriptures, there are these wonderful declarations of the gospel, salvation in Jesus Christ alone, the only Savior. But we find that throughout the Old Testament, we not only have declarations of the gospel, but we also have these pictures and types of the gospel, which show us the saving work of Christ, what it will be, what it will look like. Now, there are those who say, well, you know, the Old Testament, well, that's just really, that's history of the Jewish nation and They dismiss the idea that you can see the gospel there. And uh, they, they dismiss the idea that these things not only have that immediate relevance and application in terms of the history of Israel and prophecy concerning Israel, but also that you can see beyond that to see great pictures of the gospel. They dismiss that. Now, of course, we know that the Old Testament is a stunning true record of God's dealings with his chosen people in that Old Covenant as well as many prophecies concerning their future. But all the way through, there are these great pictures, these great types, and we are impoverished if we, if we don't see them. fact, it's a tragedy if we miss them. And it also misunderstands the, the nature of this divine book. God is at work throughout in both the old and the new and his redemptive purposes are being brought to pass and his graciousness is to be seen throughout the scriptures. And so in this passage, Jeremiah is a a prophet of God. He's been called of the Lord to speak for the Lord and often he is associated with suffering and hardship and disappointment and pessimism. But throughout this book, there are these great gospel pictures and hope in the midst of real terrible circumstances and things that were happening. And these words, which are full of what God will do for his people Israel, also speak of how God transforms situations. How God is able to turn things around, to take what is ruined and lost and restore it. That in itself is the glorious gospel theme, that God can take what is lost and restore it. And there is great power that we see here. Think of Romans 1, 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And so just to lead into this, I want you to see very clearly that salvation is of the Lord. I hope that you know that it is of the Lord from beginning to end. Look at verse 12. Thus says the Lord. Such a wonderful expression. Thus says the Lord, God is speaking, God is taking the initiative. We don't understand the gospel unless we see that it is above all a work of God. We know, of course, that man has responsibility, but it is the secondary action, the enabling that is given to respond to the work of God, which is first and foremost. And this account before us in Jeremiah 30 is full of God's work, God's activity, his hand laid bare. The declaration of what he is going to do concerning deliverance and restoration. And the Bible is so clear that, you know, we, we can't save ourselves. We can't deliver ourselves. We can't make things right. Those things which are ruined, we cannot just sort out ourselves. God must come. God must act. And here God is speaking and revealing and proclaiming what he will do in order that there can be this transformation. And it shows us that the gospel is something that is given by God. It is the gospel of God. And he gives abundantly to those who deserve nothing from him. He is a gracious God, a glorious God. And these are the themes that we see even here. And you know, if we're true believers this night, we will recognize that. We will acknowledge that gladly. And with thanksgiving that we are what we are, by God's grace, that He has done this work. It's all of Him. Friend, we have to start here. Do you know, there are still so many that run after man made answers, they're looking for solutions in, in all the wrong places. And you know, there are many who who proclaim man-made answers to grow their own success, but you know, those things will be swept away. And our text here in Jeremiah demands us to stop and to think and to answer this question, have we really listened to what God says? Have we really listened to what God says in his word? Do we understand the power and authority that comes with, thus says the Lord? Or are we still pursuing a self-made religion that picks and chooses, that maybe promises much and suits us, but it will not save us? As one explains, that which starts with man and his attempts to find God, instead of starting with God's way of finding and saving man, is not the gospel. The gospel starts with God, and it comes from him. Salvation is of the Lord. And then also I want you to see that salvation is something that is supernatural. You know, when we speak as someone being saved, we are speaking of a supernatural work of God, that there is a a miracle of grace, a mighty transformation, and that's really where our text comes in, the city shall be built upon its own mountain. You know, when we come to this gospel of God as revealed in his word, the power of God, the Bible uses these terms such as rebirth, regeneration, renovation, This gospel makes all things new. It is never a partial work. It is never just a a surface improvement. The gospel changes us entirely because it is a divine action in the life. This is something glorious. We should never underestimate it, never belittle it or see it as a, a small thing even when one is saved. You know, whenever we truly encounter the saving act of God, it leaves us amazed. It moves us to praise. You know, think of Paul when he's thinking of the gospel. 1 Timothy 3.16, great is the mystery of godliness. Or Romans 11, after considering God's redemptive purposes, all the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgment and his ways past finding out. And you know, whenever there's been a recovery of the true gospel, the saints through the ages, they have constantly acknowledged themselves to be lost in wonder and love and praise as they think on these great things. You know, that's the only fitting response to what God has done in sovereign grace, to worship him, bow before him, overwhelmed by his majesty and his mercy and his loving kindness. And when God intervenes, it always leaves those concerned in wonder. Let me ask you, are you amazed by the gospel? Or have you become complacent with it? Does it fill you with wonder? Does it draw out your heart in thanksgiving with love and with praise? Salvation is a supernatural work of God. And it follows its good news. The gospel is good news. By the way, every action of God is not necessarily good news for us. The Bible tells us that he announces his law, his wrath, his punishment. But in the gospel, he states something that not only surprises and amazes men, but also leads them to praise and thanksgiving, to be filled with joy unspeakable. So if I was here tonight and my message was for you to try harder and to live better, well, that's not good news. And no doubt you'd go away very miserable. In fact, if I hope in this life and the next are just reliant on what we do, what a desperate situation to be in. You know, it will only lead to fear and to heartache because we might start off very well. And we might be really eager and enthusiastic, but the reality is we soon fall off. And in fact, the impossibility of the task is there. We, We fail. There's no way we can sustain or save ourselves and faced with the demands of the most holy and perfect law, you know, there we are. And if we were just about trying to keep that, we would be done. But you see, that's not the gospel. You know, the Christian is able to see the perfect standard of God, and he is able to know peace and happiness if he's in Christ. When he's confronted with the the toughest trials and the heartbreaks, the Christian is able to know that peace which transcends all understanding. Why? Because this gospel is good news. Found in Jesus Christ alone, all blessings that come through him compensate for all that we might face in this life, whatever demands and trials and troubles. The gospel is glorious and it delivers and it grants forgiveness and it brings us to know God and it invigorates us and grants us peace and joy. And friend, you need to know it. You know, it's nothing like knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in our text, we have a great announcement of hope, of deliverance. You see, the children of Israel, they were in a terrible situation. And it owed mostly to the fact that they disregarded the Lord. They'd gone their own way. And their country, the city of Jerusalem, was under attack for an, an enemy that was fierce, that was relentless. And day after day, they grew weaker. And Jeremiah, under the hand of God, would prophesy the events that would all come to pass. The city will be captured and it will be destroyed by the enemy and the children of Israel will be carried away captive to Babylon. And yet this is the remarkable thing. After 70 years, the captivity would end, the captives would return and the city would be built again on her own man. And so that's the good news of God's plan, that he will transform this bleak situation. So it's a message of hope in the midst of the distress. And really it's in that that we have this wonderful picture of the gospel. So just think for me with me for a moment on this mighty city in ruins. You know, the city of Jerusalem, after the enemy swept in, there is this great ruin. It's in a heap. Jerusalem was the, the city of God. It was the pride of the people, the city of which the psalmist had so frequently sung, whose excellencies have been declared again and again. It's a wondrous city and regarded as the earthly habitation of God. The temple was in Jerusalem where the people would meet to worship, where they came with their offerings and their sacrifices and come for the great feasts and the highest moments of congregation, national life. All experienced there. They felt the presence of God. They thanked him for the many blessings he had given. And the city was also remarkable because it was a, a stronghold, seemingly. Its position amidst the rocks and its battlements and its towers and its turrets. And at one point it was the city that had never been conquered. But then owing to the sin of the people, owing to their disobedience and falling away from God, their neglect of his commandments in their own lives and in the life of the city, the defenses were weakened, the people themselves unconcerned. And it was at that point that the enemy swept in and took advantage and attacked and ransacked the city and reduced it to a ruin. And the temple had been destroyed. The treasures of the temple were taken. The altar demolished. The walls raised to the ground. The once grand battlements and towers and turrets all crashed to the earth. The city of God was in a heap. All the glorious features were now in ruins. The glory had departed. The greatness had gone. And now just a mass of brokenness, a devastating reality. And you say, well, okay, where do you see the gospel in that? Well, the ruins of Jerusalem give us a picture concerning the ruin of a person's soul. You know, often in the scripture, in addition to the literal reference to the city, Jerusalem is used as a picture of the soul. Do you know, God created man perfect. It's a clear teaching in the Word of God. It is a, a, a clear truth. We can't deny that. God created man perfect. But then the Bible explains that sin entered the world, man fell, and the relationship with God was broken, and man, therefore, was under condemnation and judgment and punishment. The relationship with God was broken. There was a separation. Now, God, of course, would provide a way of deliverance, but just think for a moment. When God created man, he gave him authority over creation. So he was given to rule and to dominate the life of the world. And just as Jerusalem was set high on a rock, so man was created to stand out with dignity and authority above all else in creation. And God created him with the power and faculties that made him unique in the world. And whilst possessing some of the the same instincts and powers as those other creations, man was created in the image of God. And he was given the high power of reason, of discipline, of control. He was able to think and think of himself objectively and to ponder and to measure and to understand and think of being and existence. But above all of that, man was created with a soul. Unique. And therefore... Man was not only capable of thought and reason, but also to know God and to commune with God. Man was created with those unique qualities and what is more will be judged according to that standard. One writer puts it like this, as God gave the city of Jerusalem to the children of Israel, so he gave to men their souls. As he held the children of Israel responsible for what they had done with and made of their city, So he holds us responsible for what we have done with his great gift to us, the soul. And the question is, what have we done with it? What is true of us? What is the state of our soul? I wonder if you understand the privileged position of man created to know God. Have you thought of yourself like that? Has it been in terms of God, of the wonderful possibilities that he has for you? Or has it only been in terms of this world, the flesh, or of things in these senses? Have you realized the preciousness of life that man possesses? The privilege of being a living soul, unique, special creation of God. You know, think further on this picture of the city. What about the walls that surround the city of your soul? What are your defenses? Do you realize that there is an enemy who is constantly trying to ruin you? You know, it says in the Bible, that the enemy strolls around as a, a roaring lion waiting to attack, waiting to devour. And with him, there are whole hosts of enemies constantly attacking us. Temptation and sin and suggestion to evil constantly bombards. And we've known it, haven't we, you know? These things come against us. Have our defenses held or have our walls cracked? Have they begun to tumble? Have we given in to sin? Have we preserved purity? Well, we haven't. You know, as we look back across our lives, what do we find? We find brokenness and sin and a mess. And the enemy has swept in and wrecked and ruined. And we're ruined ourselves because of sin. You say, well, what of the palaces and the buildings that once the the pride of the city? Well, let me ask you, what have you made of your mind? What have you filled your mind with? How have you used your time? What have you engaged in? Has it been the great things, the eternal things, the, the noble things? What have you given your emotions to? What direction have they taken? Who really controls those things? Has the enemy come in and swept through? Has he laid waste? The reality is, friends, that we are ruined. And we are exposed. We, we look around this world and we see man using the powers and the faculties that God has given to him for his own selfish pursuits of pleasure and gratification to forward himself. And the mind and the, you know, the intellect, the feeling, the emotions, the things that set man apart, they are used in a manner that is ruined and tainted by sin, and directed by the enemy, and fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the, of the self. And the very powers that were meant to be remarkable in man have become a shame. And we ask the question to ourselves, what drives us? What dictates how we spend our time and our energy on our money? What really appeals to you and pleases us? What are we investing in? But then we come to the very center of it all, the temple. The chief glory of Jerusalem is the temple. What about the temple of your soul? The place of God, the place of communion with God, the place of hearing his voice. What of it? You might try to argue with me, well, some of my walls are intact and I'm I'm doing my best. But what about that very central part? Do you know God? Do you know him? Is he real to you? Do you have that that holy of holies, as it were, where he lives and dwells within you? See, these questions apply to all of us. God created us to know him and to dwell with him and to commune with him. He created us with that possibility and he holds us responsible for how we use that. And so the question is, what of you? And as you compare yourself with God's standard of perfection, what do you see? Do you not see that ruin? The enemy overrun, captured in chains, enslaved to sin, demolished. And what is more, there we are. We see our own sin and we see our rebellion against God. Just like Jerusalem set in ruins at the hands of a terrible enemy, so sin has ruined us. And the enemy holds us captive. We are in chains. And that is man ruined and lost. Restoration and deliverance are impossible for him. In his own strength. But then, the solution found with the Lord. You know, after the destruction of the city, the children of Israel, they're carried away, captives to Babylon. They are utterly helpless. They've been carried far away. And the enemy is so strong and powerful, there seem to be no hope. There's nothing they can do. They're in this captivity. And it's so clear that as we see their captivity, we're reminded too of the captivity of our soul. Now, there were some amongst the children of Israel, they weren't very worried about going back to Jerusalem. They became accustomed to their slavery. Some even prospered there and serving themselves. Well, we don't need to think too much about them. We're concerned with those who had a yearning to return. There was something inside them that, that longed to go back, but they were powerless, they were helpless. And you read of it, their heart is to go back. And to see Jerusalem established again, to the glory of God again. You know, there's a great tragedy. There are thousands today, millions even, who are not concerned for the state of their souls. And even when they're told, they don't care because their life is comfortable. And, you know, they're comfortable in their captivity. They don't understand their end. But here you are this night, and I pray that you are concerned for your soul. And maybe you begin to see that your soul is in a desperate plight and you long to know what you ought to be. I wonder if you've ever realized that helplessness. And see, friends, this gospel can deliver you. You know, see the parallel between the captivity of the children of Israel and that of your soul captive to sin and death and the enemy. What can you do? You know, you can try and turn over a new leaf. You can try and live a better life. won't deliver you. You know, the children of Israel might have decided to uh, try and have a moral reformation. It might have made life easier for their captives, but it wouldn't have delivered them. They needed God to work, and their past hung heavy upon them. They couldn't change their, their waywardness and their disobedience. They couldn't do anything about that. It was done. You know, they were left with ruins. They had no resources, no power, no ability to build anything new. And friends, you know, we, we all have a past and we can't deal with it. There's nothing we can do that can change the past. It reminds and it binds us. And, you know, before we even consider the battle against sin now, you know, we've got to face the guilt and pollution of our sinful past. You know, can we, can we just rebuild the walls and defenses? Can we just shake off the power of the enemy? We can't do it see, the world around us and all the education in the world, all the legislation in the world can't deal with the real issues. And, you know, man always finds it hard to sustain any effort essential to progress anyway. All the effort in the world cannot rebuild. The relationship with God cannot find God and know him. Every man-made scheme falls. We can't deal with the past. We're defeated in the present We face the the fear of an unknown future, as it were. And what is more, we know these things deep down. We know that eternity is written upon our hearts. And when we cease to try and convince ourselves everything is okay, and we listen to that inner voice, we know the reality of our position. You know, why do you think that the world is always so busy and so loud because it wants to crowd out any time and space to think about reality. We beat down our conscience, we, we hush it away, we want to fill our lives, and yet all the while we remain in captivity. And underneath it all, there is that unrest that, that God is, that we're accountable to him, that we've got to face him. But how can we be right with him? How can we find him? You know, and there is that inner yearning. Not only is our soul ruined by the enemy, but it's unhappy. You know, there are people in this world, that are trying to fill their lives with all manner of things, but when you really get deep down, they're unhappy. They're restless. And then we look at those who know God, who know his presence, who know his working in their lives. It's such a contrast. To face death with serenity and calm and peace. To know that death is but a door and beyond it lies eternal bliss and glory. To know a God who is with them through all of the difficulties and trials of this life. Don't you feel that longing? Are you not in this state of captivity and want to be released? The city is in a heap. You are helpless. The task seems too great. All the efforts of man fail. What we really need is God's intervention. And that's where we finish tonight, because the gospel rebuilds and makes new. That's the wonderful thing in this simple text. Into this captivity comes the words, thus says the Lord, behold, I will deliver, I will restore, I will have mercy. And that was actually fulfilled for the children of Israel where men failed God made a way in which that remnant could return and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple right there upon the ruined site. They built the new city. On the very ruins, the new city was built. The old site, but a new city. God again with his people. Stunning intervention of God on behalf of the children of Israel. And it reminds us that our God is able to do the impossible. And that is what he does for the soul. He comes to us in our deepest trouble. He comes to us in our helplessness and our desperation. And he announces what he purposes to do. And it's his action and he intervenes with a miracle. The city will be built on her own ruin. And he promises us life and joy just when we are brought to the end of ourselves. God brings his glorious word of hope and of life and of salvation You say, well, how does it come to us? Through Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And how does he do it? Well, you think we need to be brought out of our captivity. We need to be brought, as it were, back to Jerusalem. And all the rubbish and the ruins of the past need to be cleared away. That's our first problem. How can the past be dealt with? How can the wreckage and guilt that we have known in our lives, how can it be removed? How can... It be dealt with. Remorse and sorrow won't do it. Our own efforts cannot atone for it. How can it be cleared? The cross of Jesus Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood. Sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. He, builds a, he takes and bears our guilt. He bears it away. He pays the penalty. He clears the ruin. And the wreckage that has been created by sin. And he deals with it all. And he sweeps it all away. And that's just the beginning. You know, there are those who think that the gospel is just that. That God forgives and and that's it. And then off you go and it's over to you. No. God does more than just clear the ruins. And leave the old site vacant as it were. You see, to not build a new city would mean the enemy had been successful. No, he doesn't stop there. The Son of God didn't just die for our sins, but he rose again and ascended into heaven, and from heaven he sent the Holy Spirit, and we are given, through that precious work of the Holy Spirit, new birth, new life, that new creation. And we are transformed and made new men and women in Christ. And so we're offered not only pardon and forgiveness, but new life, eternal life. A new Jerusalem, as it were, is built on the old site. You are made new. You know, you need to see the importance of that word, you. It's a great word. It shows why the gospel is so great. You know, a city bearing the name Jerusalem in our text is not built somewhere else. You know, some random place. It is built on the old site, the same site. Still Jerusalem, but new. And the gospel is, takes you your personality your individuality and you're given a new nature a new life with new desires and new interests and hopes and possibilities and above all a new temple as it were he gives you the privilege of communion with him and to find your greatest joy in him it's a miracle of grace he takes you and he changes you and he makes you new And having forgiven you, God assures you that you are his child. He smiles upon you. He blesses you. He dwells within you. That resurrection power at work in you. And you still have the same name. You're still the same essential individual, but you are completely new. You've been made new. The site is the same. The city is new. As Paul says, I live, yet not I. But Christ lives in me. And that process, that work, even though we have it all in position, it is being worked out until that final day when that new creation will be fully realized and we will be glorified. It's a staggering thought. And you say, well, that's, that's, that's wonderful and we've been made new, but, but what about if the enemy comes back? What about if he attacks again? And, and what then? Well, you're right to see the danger. The enemy will come back. But God in Christ makes you more than conqueror. Before, you were fighting alone and you were easily defeated. But now, our captain of salvation stands with you. The one who conquered and has overcome the enemy dwells within you and strengthens you, causing you to stand, and he will never let you fall. Completely. He will uphold you underneath of those everlasting arms. He will be your strength. He will empower you. He will renew you. He will never leave you or forsake you. The sight which previously had known defeat will now only know triumph and victory in the ultimate. You know, these are the great blessings of the gospel. You know, we are transformed. We are saved. And it's all God's action. And what was ruined is made new. Friend, what have you? Have you heard this call to you in the midst of your yearning that there is nothing that can deliver you apart from this gospel? The overwhelming love and grace and mercy of God in Christ. You know, you might think, well, you know, I'm beyond God's grace. I don't think he could do that for me. Nothing is too hard for our God. And if you call upon his name, he will hear and he will answer. He will save you to the uttermost and he will make you new. And I wonder if that will be your cry this night. Oh God, I know I'm ruined. I know I'm in chains to sin. Please deliver me. Please forgive me. Please wash me and make me new. And you know, if you cry to him like that, he will answer. And then shall that city be built again upon its own mount. New creations in Christ. Wonderful, wonderful hope. Friends, the gospel saves and keeps. I pray that you would know it, this transforming power of God, this transforming power of God, which is still at work today. And we pray will be at work in your life. Amen.